What do you think could be done about drug overdosing in well, or out of the profession of I music? I think the, the basic thing nobody asks is why do people take drugs of any sort, from alcohol to aspirose to hard drugs? And that question has to be resolved first before you think, well, what can we do for the poor drug addict? Why do we and you and anybody have to have these accessories to normal living mm -hmm. to live? I mean, is there something wrong with society that's making us so pressurized that we cannot live in it without guarding ourselves against it? So it's that basic, the more problem. Communication. I think if people are allowed to be a bit more free and express themselves, they wouldn't have to inhibit themselves by taking drugs to not be hurt. People take drugs and drink so they don't feel what's going on around them. People yeah, are frightened of freedom. They think freedom, oh, there'll be excesses. Of course there would be excess to an extent, and then it would settle down. And uh, all forms of freedom will be the same as that. If people are allowed to be completely free, it will level out, and people will be less inhibited and not be frightened of each other and wouldn't have to take drugs to prevent being hurt by each other. Purple in the morning, blue in the afternoon, orange in the evening. Just like that. One, two, three, four. You know, somebody like you can really make things all right for me. You know what we need to do? We need to get us a piece of this Brody shit. Cut it up and off it. Double our money, easy. That's what I'm talking about, baby. No hassle. You just watch my back, and I'll watch yours. On our way, baby. On our way. Hey, Ma, you want uppers? You don't know. I'm gonna be on television. We got a winner. I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. It's a reason to smile. Let's do this right, man. All I'm saying is we should take a little taste. We know much to cut. business. Fair enough. Getting the money is not the problem, Harry. I don't know what I'm gonna have to do to get it. This is our last chance to get back on track. You promised me that everything was gonna be okay, remember? I'm gonna be on television. and welcome to Film Gold and this is in fact the first solo episode. I'll explain why in a second. If you are a new listener to Film Gold, they also have two other podcasts, Life and Life Only, which is about psychology and alternative media and Glass Onion on John Lennon, obviously about John Lennon and sometimes the Beatles in general. The reason I'm doing this is because um, I was recently on the Stinking Paws podcast with Scott Phipps who uh, Film Gold regular listeners will know very well because he's in almost every episode now. And what happens is that myself, Scott and Stephen, we get together 
and we take it in turns to choose the next film. And I chose Requiem for a Dream, which is obviously the film on the docket for this episode. What usually happens with films that have a lot to them or films that I particularly love, I do make an effort to make some good notes and I usually end up with four to six pages of notes. I think for Taxi Driver, I had nearly 10, but that's another story. Sometimes I feel like I really want to get out everything that's in my notes. But when I do those podcasts with Scott and Stephen, yeah, there are three of us. I always say to Scott, I don't want to dominate. And he always says, well, you're making my job easier if you do. But it's not really my natural thing to just take over conversations. So as soon as I've made these notes for Requiem for a Dream and thinking about the overall topic of drugs, which is one that I'm very, very interested in and which I think is very, very important, and it's not quite what you might think it is, the drug issue. In fact, I'm going to start with that in a second before I actually get to the plot of the film. So when I made my notes, I thought, well, I'm not going to get through this and I don't want to desperately try and say everything I want to say. So I thought, I actually thought to myself, well, I'll probably do a solo episode. Then I can kind of relax when I do the podcast with the guys. We did that a couple of weeks ago and... I don't remember everything I did and didn't say, but I'm going to try not to overlap it too much, the stuff that I'm going to say. The good thing is that Scott stockpiles for his podcast, so often they don't come out until maybe two or three months after we've recorded them. So this episode that you're hearing now is not going to clash with that one. When Scott puts the episode out, I will, uh, of course, share it with Film Gold listeners. As I said, I have three podcasts. You can find everything I do basically at anthonyrotuno.com, Anthony without an H, and then Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O. I've got some music on there as well and a blog. My three podcasts really, to quote John Lennon or to slightly paraphrase him, I consider them one work because they they overlap a lot and it's a a nice thing to have what I call in slightly tongue-in-cheek my little podcast empire. (laughs) Or my podcast network of three shows. Anyway, enough about that. What I'm going to do, I've got my notes here. They are a mixture of the plot, which has come from the Wikipedia page, and then some notes are made on things that the director, Darren Aronofsky, has said, and uh, stuff that a couple of the actors have said as well, and then uh, a few of my own observations at the same time. The genre for this film... Technically, I suppose, would be a psychological drama. It came out in the year 2000. Obviously, that alone is quite significant, but it was at a time of films like The Matrix and Fight Club that came at the end of the century. American Beauty as well, which is uh, not really similar to this at all, but the films at that time, they were hitting a... I don't know, we were hitting a period of truths coming out and obviously say what you like about the internet but it is a platform for getting information out and this was a time when attitudes were changing and I think perhaps it was the coming of the millennium even though it's just a number at the end of the day and the world didn't suddenly change you know Y2K theories aside I don't think everyone anyone was expecting the world to change on the 1st of January 2000 I don't make a big deal of my birthday which uh, happened to be yesterday (laughs) and I almost completely forgot about it and Christmas and New Year and stuff but there's something about the New Year I like you know even if it's sort of um, artificial it's a time for a new beginnings and this film which is fairly high profile but it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea obviously in terms of the subject matter it's probably not a massively well-known film I'll tell you how I actually heard about it I had some 
awareness of it when it came out, I think. But in 2020, I did a podcast for Glass Onion on John Lennon. It was a two-parter. If you want to have a listen, it was episodes 49 and 50 with a guy called Tom Hanyardi, who's a Beatles podcaster as well. And we reviewed a book called Riding So High, The Beatles and Drugs. And I really loved this book. And I thought it was much needed because it made the point that I won't quote the blurb because I don't have it with I don't have it to hand. But it was talking about how drugs forged bonds, but then in the end drove the band apart, you know, along with other things. But that's what can happen when people are taking substances. It can um, make relationships deeper. But then there is a point and I'm going to get to that when we reach the point of the film where this happens to the characters, where um, you reach a point of no return, there's a tipping point. If the drugs get too important to you, then everything else, by extension, becomes less important. We talked about drug films or drug films about drugs, and he mentioned it, and that's where I got to know the film again. I just wanted to quickly make a couple of points, and these were points that were made in that Glass Onion show that I just mentioned everyone takes drugs okay if you include aspirin and paracetamol and uh, the chemicals that are in cigarettes and if you include alcohol as a drug and uh, one of the big ones really is sugar I mean processed sugar is just everywhere and a lot of people wouldn't call it a drug probably the harshest word they'd have for it is preservative (laughs) we personally have a very strict diet called macrobiotic uh, which makes you high as a kite folks and not, no paranoia. The whole diet is based around not eating food with any kind of artificial colouring, chemical or anything in. And until the people who put the chemicals into all our food and water change their minds or we make it so as they have to, the thing is to read everything you eat. Just read every packet and see how much dope they're putting in there. They're talking about drug problem. You want to see what you're eating every morning. Just every packet's full of government-sponsored chemical colouring, everything's grown with drugs. If you take as much trouble over your food as you do over your clothes, then you can find out where you can buy food that hasn't been touched by chemical. And then it's like having a car and putting the worst kind of petrol in or trying to run it on sort of Vaseline. It doesn't run too well. And if you really get your machine ticking over with the right food, it really outpaces anything around. So Everyone takes drugs of one kind or another. The other thing is that everyone is addicted to something. And this is particularly pertinent when you think of smartphones and technology in general. I think addiction to television, let's say, has been a a well-recognised thing over the last however many years, the last few decades. It's good to know that because I think the previous generation, I mean, I'm in my 40s, my parents' generation, unless they were maybe 60s hippies, probably just hear about drugs as the scourge of society unless they've made a point of educating themselves about it in their later years there is a prevailing sense of that but I think the culture has moved that forward and we are getting more nuanced in our um, appreciation if that's the right word perhaps awareness is a better word of uh, the role that drugs play i.e. that people don't only take them because they're desperate People don't take them because pushers hang around outside schools offering them a little taste. I'm sure that does happen. I made this point on one of the John Lennon shows. But people take them because of pressure, be it peer pressure or just the pressures of society and modern life. 
When I was talking about those films just before about that came around at the turn of the century, I want to include in that an album as well, OK Computer by Radiohead, because I just happened to have been listening to it in my car. I decided to put all my old CDs in the car, and it's a lovely nostalgia thing. But that Radiohead album is really ushering in the 20th century. And there's even a, a song, No Surprises, talks about a job that slowly kills you, bruises that won't heal. So I think there's an awareness of how a lot of people, again, let's just take my parents' generation, mindlessly fell into work just to put food on the table. That daily grind of work, you know, another thing that's happened recently is that people are demanding that they can change jobs every few years if they want to, and it's not black mark on their CV. It doesn't make them unemployable. So just to make the point that, you know, drugs is one of those things where awareness by the public is changing and it is, uh, it is moving forward. Anyway, I've got a lot to say about this film, so let's get cracking. So a requiem is an act of remembrance, a ceremony for a dead person. And the title, Requiem for a Dream, I suppose more accurately it's a requiem for the broken dreams of a few people. It could be the American dream, or it could just be everybody's dream of making good. Maybe that's why it's a dream, just one dream, or it could be requiem for the dream. We're all sharing, if you like. The director is Darren Aronofsky, as I mentioned. The only films I've seen of his, actually, are The Wrestler and Black Swan. There's a film that he made just prior to Requiem for a Dream called Pie, which I'm quite interested in now because they talked about it a lot, and I think a few of the same faces appeared. I mean, this is normal. A director, you want reliable actors and a reliable crew, and it's much more stressful to try and work with new people. Not that you shouldn't work with new people, and I'm not saying Darren Aronofsky has all the same actors in his films. He absolutely doesn't, but there are a few stalwarts, you know, those really reliable character actors. The star of this film, as far as I'm concerned, is Ellen Burstyn, and I guess she was first billed. She's obviously been in... I mean, she was in two absolutely seminal 1970s films, The Last Picture Show and The Exorcist. She was also in a film called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is an early Scorsese film prior to Taxi Driver, which I haven't seen. She was in the remake of The Wicker Man, but let's forgive her for that. And she also played Barbara Bush in uh, the film W, about George W. Bush. Darren Aronofsky said that Ellen completely gave herself to the character and also improvised some little touches, either lines or just little physicality she did. I think Darren had seen her... She was on Broadway. She was in a, a play... I wouldn't say you can always tell actors who have stage experience or have extensive stage experience, but when you watch a film, when you see an actor, using the word actor for men and women here, when you see them and they can just hold a look for a long time, that's one of the hallmarks, I think, of stage acting. It's that that ability to concentrate and to, to be in emotions for, you know, two hours at a time, maybe three, four hours if you're doing Shakespeare, for example. Film making is, of course, completely different. You might be hanging around all day while they get the shot set up, and then you've got to just turn it on, you know, like that. But Darren said there were two or three times in certain scenes where Ellen Burstyn just absolutely, you could feel she was completely into the character of Sarah Goldfarb. I think when I was on Stinky Paws recently... And I was joking about how absurd it was about that she lost the Oscar to Julia Roberts in Erin Brockovich. Julia Roberts isn't bad, but the character she's playing in Erin Brockovich, sassy, 
you know, stands up for herself, but with a little bit of vulnerability. That's not a million miles away from Pretty Woman, is it? I know Erin Brockovich wasn't a prostitute, but uh, the way she plays it, that has become the Julia Roberts character. But to compare that to what Ellen Burstyn's doing here, I mean, I think Ellen Burstyn deserved two Oscars. Anyway, I didn't check the Golden Globes and the other awards. I don't know. She must have been honoured in some way for this. Just a magic performance. Jared Leto, he had a bit of a hot streak, in fact. From 1998 to 2000, he was in The Thin Red Line, which is a very good war film, Fight Club, Girl Interrupted, American Psycho. I'd almost completely forgotten he was in that. He played Paul Allen, the one who had uh, the snazziest business card, if you remember, a classic scene in that film. Then he made this film, just for my Beatles audience. And we have a running joke with Scott and Stephen that I managed to get a Beatles reference into every single film review. And sometimes it's more tenuous than others. But Jared Leto did play Mark David Chapman, the killer of John Lennon, in a film called Chapter 27, which wasn't a great film, in my opinion. There was another one made on the same topic called The Killing of John Lennon. And I'd recommend that much more. Jennifer Connolly was a child actress. She was in Once Upon a Time in America. Really, really good performance. She was in A Beautiful Mind, House of Sand and Fog, Blood Diamond. Those are just the ones I've seen her in. I'm sure she's been in loads of other films that I haven't seen. Marlon Wayans, who played Tyrone, was a comedy actor. I mean, I knew him from Scary Movie. I gave up on about the second Scary Movie film, but he was very good in this. And not really showing any comedic touches in this. Maybe just a little bit at the beginning. Just a couple of other things with casting. Louise Lasser is one of Sarah's friends i sort of call them the women's institute in this film these clucking hens of middle-aged women who get very excited when she gets a a letter in the post offering her a spot on this tv show i'll get to that in a sec because i wasn't totally sure about that and then they cheer her as she mails her reply (laughs) it's brilliant stuff louise lasso was married to woody allen and was the love interest in the films take the money and run bananas and uh one sequence of everything you always want to know about sex but were afraid to ask. You know, he tended to cast the woman he was dating in his films. Obviously, he had Diane Keaton and then Mia Farrow. Another of Sarah's friends was one of the bank workers in Dog Day Afternoon, the fantastic um, heist movie. It's very, very unique for a heist movie with Al Pacino and John Cazale and directed by Sidney Lumet. There's one of the bank tellers who develops a relationship, a kind of a friendship in a way with Pacino, who's holding up this bank. I don't know if it was her, but it was one of the bank workers in that film. This film was based on the 1978 novel of the same name by Hubert Selby Jr., who turns up later in the film, and I think I'll tell you about that when we get to the scene. Darren Aronofsky wrote the screenplay with Selby. The film premiered at Cannes and was praised for its visual style, direction, screenplay, editing, music, cast, emotional depth and themes. Can't really argue with that. The film depicts four characters affected by drug addiction and how it alters their physical and emotional states. Their addictions cause them to become imprisoned in a world of delusion and desperation. As the film progresses, each character deteriorates and their reality is overtaken by delusion, resulting in catastrophe. Now on the face of it, That wouldn't sound that different from a lot of other, let's say, quote-unquote, drug movies, particularly older ones, where basically you see people taking drugs and their life gradually goes downhill and it ends badly. And that is what happens in this film. But this film has just got so much style, and that's not style over substance, that's just style. There's substance as well. And 
it's so much more subtle and it's just brilliantly made and the writing's great and the acting's fantastic. Aronofsky in the cast spoke of the film being about addictions in general, not just drugs. Now, obviously, drugs is a good one, like alcohol. It's a good one to maybe educate or to show people about addictions in general. But obviously, the other one here is TV. And if you really extend it out, Sarah's desire to be on television is also, in a sense, an addiction or a desperation for attention. So you can talk about addictions and compulsions and weaknesses and all the things that we need. You know, everyone needs attention. Sarah in this film is a widow and she's living in the past. She's almost addicted to a past that's gone. You know, she talks to her dead husband and she's got this dream like all the others have. It's not just for her. For her, it's not just being on TV. It's a dream of, I don't know, some return to the way things were. And me in my own life, I mean, I've always been prone to nostalgia and sometimes it's a nice thing, but sometimes it can get a bit desperate. You know, I've I've been back to my hometown quite a few times over the years. And sometimes when I walk those streets, I think, what am I really trying to achieve by this? I know all these places. Am I trying to imagine I'm back in 1982, you know, when I was a kid? Because basically I won't go on the tangent now, but we moved house when I was about nine years old and I just didn't get on very well in the town that we moved to and it's affected me really forever, you know, and I've been trying to recreate the thing that we had. We were slightly lower down the social scale, kind of lower middle class, and we had a community and I had um, school friends and we were all closely linked, you know, so I know all about trying to recreate the past or trying to think that those things still exist that the past is the present in a strange way so that was one of the other things that I completely had connected with when I was making notes of the film it was just sparking off all these ideas and I had to get it all down when I was watching this I couldn't help making comparisons to train spotting and I often find you know, I talked about this on a podcast ages ago that I was on there are a lot of English and American equivalents so I think the the uh, examples I gave, you know, going very back was Joan Collins, Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe and Diana Dawes. You know, in a sense, this film and Trainspotting are doing similar things. And what they were trying to show, I think, and this is so important, is that drugs are fun to begin with, and they're fun when you can work them around your life. Obviously, I have to be very careful here not to sound too positive about it. But, you know, with alcohol, I think Alcohol for a young person is a necessary, is it necessary? Hmm, bad choice of words. I won't edit that out. I'll leave that in. It's a useful, let's say, social lubricant. You know, it does have a, a quality that it loosens the tongue and it can bring you out of yourself, particularly if you're a very shy person. But I have to be very careful here of not sounding like I'm advocating drug use or alcohol use because... I'm not going to pretend that I have a massive audience. You know, I'm not like Joe Rogan where millions of people are kind of hanging on his every word in a sense. But I'm sure my audience is quite diverse. So I could be, if I say something uh, positive about drugs, and of course I have to differentiate as well, soft drugs, hard drugs, they're all different. If I say something positive, then just if just one person hears that and thinks, oh yeah, it might be fun to smoke a joint, or uh, I don't think they'd go straight to heroin, or they might think oh you know have a whiskey or take some diet pills and lose this fat that I've accumulated whatever it is you know that's very dangerous but all I would say really is that 
I mean, I've already said this really, that I think the nuanced viewpoint about drugs is becoming more widespread. And just this idea, oh, drugs are bad, and if people take drugs, they need to be imprisoned, and we don't need to understand why they take them, and we don't need to acknowledge that everyone takes drugs of some kind. Something I mentioned earlier was the the point at the film where it starts to go downhill for these people, and uh, I haven't got to that part of the plot, but I may as well just say it now because it links with train spotting. While they're working the drug around their life, you can handle it. There have been in the past, and there still are, very rich people who do heroin or perhaps cocaine, and they can handle it because they can afford it, and perhaps, I don't know, their self-esteem is high enough or they're comfortable enough in their life then it can be a little accessory to their life. But there is a tipping point where the drug starts to have too much importance and you start to work your life around the drug. This is crucial. Now, if anyone's listening to this who feels like perhaps they do indulge in alcohol or certain recreational drugs or prescription drugs a bit too much and you haven't reached that tipping point, then perhaps something useful I could say is you have to recognise that that tipping point will come or will potentially come. So you want to really nip it in the bud now while you're still in a position of strength because once the, you know, once the drug takes over, it's very, very difficult. It will wrap itself around you. I don't consider marijuana to be in this category, but if I could personalise for a second, I first smoked a giant when I was 16... And there's no doubt for me that over the next four years, I think I destroyed a lot of uh, my youthful spirit and a few of my dreams. And George Michael, so this is a famous clip on the South Bank show. I think there are two South Bank shows on George Michael. One's a really early one. But then later on, he's smoking a joint in camera and he says, you know, this stuff keeps me sane, but it, you know, you need to have fulfilled all your dreams before you go hard on this. <laughs> This stuff keeps me sane and happy. I could write without it if I was sane and happy. <laughs> you know? The thing I would actually say about it is I think it's very good for creative people, but it is a terrible, terrible drug in terms of, you know, you've got to be in the right position in life to take it. You've got to have at least achieved most of your ambitions because it, it's, it chills you out to the degree that you're, you could lose your ambition. So I would absolutely say... It's a great drug. I mean, obviously not very healthy. But if you're gonna if you're gonna take any kind of drug, this is the only kind of drug that I've ever thought was worth taking. You have to wait. You sh- I mean, it never occurred to me to even take even this until I was about 22, 23. By which time, strangely enough, I'd achieved a lot of what I wanted to. Obviously, not quite enough. But yeah, you just can't afford to smoke it if you've got anything to do. You know, <laughs> you've got anything to do at all. You're really being foolish. Not that I count this this interview anything to do. <laughs> and I think there is a laziness aspect. Aside from the fact that Joe Rogan has said that a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters smoke weed. And I would argue that they're working it around their life. But if you become too much of a pothead and you start rolling joints at first thing in the morning, that is a problem. It's not that dangerous a drug, although perhaps very heavy use. There is evidence to say that it could be linked to psychosis. I'm not saying that myself. But certainly when you're talking about harder drugs like meth and cocaine and heroin, they do have the ability to absolutely engulf you and it becomes all that you think about. One of the clever ideas in this film was to have different age groups addicted to different drugs. I mean, okay, the three young people, 
of the four main characters, the three youngsters are all doing heroin. But then you have this middle-aged lady. I should have said off the bat that I'm going to presume that people know something about this film. Essentially, you've got Sarah, as I said, played by Ellen Burstyn, the middle-aged woman. She's quite overweight at the beginning of the film, and she becomes addicted to speed, If essentially. Call it speed, amphetamines, diet pills, I suppose. I've always had a problem with the idea that the doctor was prescribing these if they were quite strong. In my experience, the doctors I've known probably wouldn't have done that. don't know if that's artistic license or not. But, um, yeah, to show that drugs can affect different age groups. And if you've matured to 45 or 50 years old, that doesn't mean you're going to handle it necessarily better than young people. Generally in films, drug films tend to be about younger people and alcohol films tend to be about middle-aged people. Although, of course, there are exceptions. I will mention Trainspotty a couple of other times. One of the things is that in that film, Renton, who's the Ewan McGregor character, describes his mother as, in her own socially acceptable way, a drug addict. And uh, I should say, in fact, my mother has got quite an interesting medicine cabinet. It's all very socially acceptable, but it's also quite full. <laughs> don't think she's going to listen to the episode, so I'm all right. The other point about not only does everyone take drugs of some kind, but people, according to a very good book I once read called Out of It, I think it was Stuart Walton, the author. It was about the history of intoxication. People have always got high, apparently. I've been trying to get high, I've been trying to get out the natural headspace. Graham Hancock said that the preferred state for um, the rulers of countries is a caffeinated state rather than a state where you might be smoking marijuana or taking a hallucinogen and cottoning on to the fact that the reality you've grown up with is certainly not everything and may not be anything to do with reality, in fact. 
Bill Hicks did some skits as well about that, about how if you take a bag of mushrooms and lie in a field and have your third eye squeegeed, you might just start not to believe in the system as much as you did before. The themes of the film, so you've obviously got isolation, and uh, there was one analysis video I watched. If I find it, I'll put it in the show notes, saying that depression and isolation are both a cause and an effect of drug use. They're there on the way in as a reason for you to do the drug, and then they become an effect. I noticed as well the characters, essentially there's really two or three stories going on. So you've got the Sarah the Ellen Burstyn character trying to get on TV. You've got Harry, Jared Leto and Tyrone. They're trying to get a business together and they are using drug selling as um, a way to raise capital for that. Marion is Harry's girlfriend. That's Jennifer Connolly. And she's got designs, excuse the pun, of being a fashion designer. So she's got sketches that she's done. So they've got their dreams. In the end, they separate into four stories. And I didn't notice that the first time I watched this film. Harry and Tyrone, they go off to Florida. I'll explain why later, if you can't remember. Then they get split off. Harry and Marion, who are the lovers, they get separated as well. So suddenly you've got four stories. So essentially they all get isolated. Marion is quite privileged, but doesn't seem to have any connection with her parents. So maybe, you know, that's a, a case that, you know, you do see of upper middle class families. There's almost a politeness between them. There's not quite that warmth. Harry and Sarah, the mother and son, they have love and affection, but there's a, there's a lack of honesty because Harry's lying about the job he's doing. Yeah, he's making out that he's going to be some kind of entrepreneur or business tycoon of some kind. She wants to believe it. That's the thing. Ellen Burstyn is brilliant at those looks, you know, those little girl looks, like the look she has when she's imagining being on TV. And it's just heartbreaking. There's something about her in this film. And it is the way she's shot and the way she's lit and the lines she's given. It's everything together. But the performance is just amazing, and it? It takes a lot of guts to do that. You could say, oh, yeah, she's got plenty of money. And a lot of people think acting is the best job in the world or being a rock star is the best job in the world. But, you know, you're also putting a lot on the line. And Aronofsky did say that Ellen Burstyn was prepared to do that. Sarah's, as I said earlier, denying her husband, his name was Seymour, his death. She's talking to him and kind of behaving like he's still there. One of the other things in the film is that all the other characters other than those four and I guess Sarah's friends... They all seem a little bit un- unreal or very detached. And sometimes their speech can be quite mechanical. And that's obviously a deliberate thing. So Harry and Sarah are deceiving themselves. And another of the themes is, is the comfort of deception. You know, when you can go into that fantasy world and you can tell yourself convincingly enough that it's real, it's a comfort. It's much easier than the real world. And again, you know, sometimes I... When I meditate or just when I'm feeling a bit sleepy, which is often a time, you know, either when I'm about to go to sleep or when I've just woken up and I don't have to get up straight away, I do get a bit of that twilight world. And I often think about when I was a child and how much better it was in many ways. But then when you're a child, you don't have any money and you don't have any independence, really. And it's so luck of the draw about whether you're born into a loving family. And, you know, there's probably rose-tinted glasses going on, but... When I had a bout of uh, COVID in late April, early May, and I talked about this on a recent Life and Life Only episode, I found myself in a 
a strange state of mind where my senses were quite heightened. And I started watching, not that much, just a little bit of uh, TV shows from when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, it was emotional, you know. I don't think there's anything wrong with occasionally going back into that world, you know. But if that starts to become your reality, then uh, this living in the past, then it's tricky. Also quite heartbreaking for me was drug addiction causes you to tell yourself things are okay. And there's a point where Harry assures Tyrone and Marion at different times that, you know, they'll get back on track. Everything's going to be all right. And you could tell that towards the end of this film, all the characters are trying to believe, say particularly Harry and Sarah, are just so desperate to believe that things aren't that bad and things can get back on track and everything's going to be all right in the end. And I was going to say, ironically, you could say that happens in the movies, but it doesn't happen in this movie. Sarah denies that Harry is stealing her TV and he's selling it to the... I don't know the, can't remember the actor's name, but he was Hector in Breaking Bad, the guy in the wheelchair with the bell in Breaking Bad. Sarah longs for popularity and she has an idea about this red dress that she I think she wore it at Harry's graduation so again she's probably got that night in her mind and you know she's putting on the red dress and she's lost in her fantasies and these pills unfortunately they are perfect not in a good way but they're perfect for indulging these fantasies because they're going to put her in a certain state she's going to feel high and suddenly again it's going to seem real to her the very first scene is a television show with an audience repeating and chanting slogans one of them is juice join us in creating excitement many years ago i briefly worked in door-to-door sales didn't last very long but when we got back to the office at the end of the day and you had a success they had like a trumpet they'd blow or that everyone would start not chanting but cheering and one of the things that they did talk about was juice and people would go around this building sort of going, juice, you know, even when nobody was telling them to, you didn't have the, the guru figure, the leader encouraging them to do that. They were doing that anyway. There's another chant, be excited, be excited. It's very chilling in this film, particularly towards the end, this TV show thing. It really makes it seem very disturbing. And I have to bring Trainspotting up again because when he's going through his withdrawal, there's Dale Winton, don't know if anyone outside Britain will remember him. He was a daytime show host. And in Trainspotting, there's a fantasy thing where the parents are on telly. But I think Renton mentions mind-numbing daytime TV. You see it in Taxi Driver as well. Travis works at night. He's an insomniac. You know, he's in that hazy state during the day. And all he's got is this terrible TV to watch about this world that really doesn't exist. It's making the viewers believe in a completely unreal world so that could be a drug as well you know i mean there is something infectious in a funny way about those shows well they are mind-numbing as well the music in this film i'm not very good at describing music i think it's just better if you just listen to it really but obviously there is a hip-hop element and there's a music video element but i think a good music video quick cutting and it's but then there's poignant more ethereal music as well and one little touch which I think I brought up on Scott's podcast, and he did notice it as well. Right at the beginning, I think the music goes a little bit exorcist, you know, which obviously Ellen Burstyn was in, and I can't believe that was uh, an accident. I'm sure that was a little something from Darren Aronofsky, a little callback to one of Ellen Burstyn's seminal roles. And right at the beginning, there's an idea of the musicians tuning up to play a requiem. That's what it sounds like. When I watch films, I generally try not to guess what's going to happen. I put myself in a state where 
I don't want to know almost, and I'm quite innocent, and I'll just let the story go where it goes. But if you watch the film again, I don't know how many times, if you're listening to this, you've seen it, maybe you've seen it loads of times, but if you've only seen it once, maybe you haven't seen it for a while, when you go back again, you'll notice that there is a slight feeling of doom from the beginning. Like I said, they're gearing up to play the Requiem from the beginning. The camera work is very uh, kinetic, and the music, there's a real pulse to the music. The film uh, has three seasons, which of course works absolutely perfectly as the three acts of any story. Summer, fall and winter. Fall is obviously autumn. And each time you see those, that Requiem overture starts up, sort of ushering in the new season, if you like. Another brilliant touch, and I'm not taking credit for noticing this because I didn't. It's another thing that was on one of these DVD extras. The lighting changes from natural to artificial, so you'll see a lot of natural light, sunlight, at the beginning of the film, and then towards the end, it's all artificial, electric light, if you like. As the dreams start to fail, you know, everything natural starts to fail, and the artificial, both the drugs and the artificial idea that their dreams are still achievable, they start to take over. I'm starting the plot here, and like I say, there'll be stuff in between the plot points. It's all fairly good in the summer. The drugs are under control, and the dreams are intact. Sarah Goldfarb, is a widow who lives alone in a Brighton Beach apartment, spends her time watching television. Her son, Harry, is a heroin addict. Like I said, there's love between them, but they do fight, and the split-screen effect comes quite early in the film, and we'll see that again. Could be very cheesy in less artistic hands, but Aronofsky does it very well, shows the separation without being too uh, on the nose, to use a popular podcast review phrase. Harry, his girlfriend Marion and his friend Tyrone deal heroin in a bid to, re- to realise their dreams. Sarah receives a call that she's been invited to appear on her favourite game show and I've got in my notes she goes from broken just before she hears that news to a, a kind of a brainwashed smile. It, it seems like the smile of someone who's been very indoctrinated by television and she's not addicted to any substances except perhaps food. Like I say, she... You know, they gave Ellen Burstyn, a, I think it was a £40 fat suit, so she's supposed to be very overweight, or pretty overweight at the beginning. What wasn't totally clear to me was, so she she did receive this, she didn't hallucinate this, obviously, she's not taking the pills at this point, that she did get invited to appear, but I wondered if, is this sent out to just thousands of people and they're on a very, very long shortlist? But anyway, she feels like she can get on TV and then that just becomes her world. She begins a restrictive crash diet in an attempt to fit into a red dress she wore at Harry's graduation, as we mentioned earlier. Now, the Women's Institute discuss various fad diets. Sarah is thinking thin. That's one of the things that you'll find in uh, diet books and self-help books. If you think thin, the rest will follow. As I said earlier, she mails her reply, gets a round of applause. And, of course, that's just like you get on a TV show. I mean, TV shows are just full of people bursting into applause and worshipping celebrities. And if you get on the show, you are treated like a celebrity and thus worshipped. And you get all the attention you could ever need, plus a whole load more. There's an interesting bit where Harry and Tyrone score heroin. This is heroin to sell. And you know what they say, don't get high on your own supply. But they decide, well, we should have a little taste to make sure it's okay. Again, very much like train spotting. Renton says, one more, one more hit. He's always planning to get off heroin. These guys are planning to make some money and to control their heroin use. That's quite ominous, that bit. You know, just take a little taste to see what the customers are getting. Harry has hallucinations and dream sequences. Sarah hallucinates 
a full fridge. This is when she's in having her diet and she keeps glancing at the fridge. At the advice of her friend Ray, Sarah visits a physician who prescribes her amphetamines to control her appetite. He's giving her something that will magically control her diet and will get her weight down and will suppress her appetite. And you have to think Sarah, perhaps like a lot of middle-aged people of that generation, as I said earlier, don't know much about drugs and don't want to know. So it's not that she would know much about amphetamines, I don't think, but it's the doctor, it's the authority figure saying, I'll take these, take two, three times a day, however many it is. And suddenly, you know, this is the dream that anyone who struggles with weight would love. You know, you just take these little pills, you can eat as much as you want and you'll get thinner, apparently, (laughs) allegedly. There's a great scene. uh, It's very well judged because you don't want to start adding comedy into this plot because that could that could have gone very badly. But, you know, there's obviously elements of comedy in trade spotting. And there's a bit where she dances to Latin music while she's eating a bagel, probably a cream cheese bagel, I guess. And uh, she can't believe how much energy she's got. And she loses 25 pounds, which for um, British listeners is about, what would that be, two stone, a bit under two stone. Harry visits and she's wrapping her arms around him and she's giving him the affection that she wants to give him anyway. It's not totally fake, but it's just, you know, she's high and she's wired. And um, this is the bit that I was talking about earlier Harry tells her, you know, he's a distributor, and she's saying, oh, how's your, how's your job going, Harry? And uh, Ellen Burstyn puts on this fantastic, I don't know exactly what accent it is. Is it a Bronx accent? Not sure. But she got it from, I think, Darren Aronofsky's mum, who plays another one of her friends. Again, it's heartbreaking, because she, she just so desperately wants this to be her default state, and she can't believe that just by taking these prescribed, so apparently on-the-level pills and she wants to give Harry lots of love, and but he realises, you know, obviously he knows something about drugs, and he realises she's, she's wired and she's bouncing around, and Harry has brought her a present, which is a brand new TV from Macy's. He makes an attempt to atone for the past, and, you know, these are really poignant scenes. They've got really good chemistry, these two. So, yeah, it's, it's that delusion that these uh, speed pills, diet pills, I don't know, props up the delusion, let's say. Harry and Marion plan to open a clothing store for Marion's designs while Tyrone seeks the approval of his mother. It's not totally clear if the mother is still alive. I think all the scenes we see is of Tyrone's little boy with his mother. Now, those are poignant as well, these dream sequences, and Harry has a dream of the ocean, and the ocean is very much part of this. The ocean obviously representing freedom. You see Harry and Marion being very intimate and affectionate while they're on heroin, And I think they have sex while they're on heroin. This is another thing that is sometimes brought out. If you get two addicts together, and I'm not talking from personal experience, but I am talking from observation, what you find, they're obviously very attached to each other. And, you know, they may have a very good sex life, particularly while they're taking the drug. What generally happens is, with these kind of drugs, heroin and the like, I think gradually the sex drive disappears. So a major part of the couple's relationship gets diminished or maybe disappears completely I don't know I mean Harry and Marion are still very young but I guess over time if you were two addicts were together for 10-20 years that would surely happen Harry notices Sarah gnashing her teeth and and he's imploring her with his heart and this is not some political maneuver he sees what's happening to his mother because she's also taking downers so she's getting in the uppers and downers 
cycle. Very easy to get into. I mean, I made a point ages ago, again, when I was a guest on a podcast, that everyone's on the uppers and downers cycle, even if it's just having a coffee in the morning and a cup of chamomile tea in the evening. I know that sounds completely ridiculous to compare that to taking strong uppers and strong downers, but it is essentially doing the same thing. And because modern life has so much stimulation to it, I think sleeping pill use is on the rise and people do very healthy things to relax in the evening. But you do have to do that. You have to get get yourself up for modern life and then you have to get yourself down so you can get to sleep so you can be in some fit state to do it all again the next day. Sarah admits that the chance to appear on television and the, the increased admiration from her friends Ada and Ray are her remaining reasons to live. And the red dress comes up constantly, symbolising this happier past. And she has a fantastic speech, you know, brilliantly written and brilliantly delivered by Ellen Burstyn. You don't know. I'm going to be on television. I got a call and an application. And- Come on, Ma. Who's pulling your leg? No, no, no. I'm telling you, I'm going to be a contestant on television. I don't know when yet. They haven't told me when yet. But you'll see how proud you are when you see your mother in a red dress, uh, television and golden shoes. What is the big deal about being on television? Those pills you're taking will kill you before you ever get on, for Christ's sake. Big deal? I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon... Millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. I'll tell them about you, your father, how good he was to us. Remember, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight, to fit in a red dress. It's a reason to smile. It makes tomorrow all right. What have I got, Harry? Why should I even make the bed or wash the dishes? I do them. But why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? I'm lonely. I'm old. You got friends, Ma? It's not the same. They don't need me. I like the way I feel. I like thinking about the red dress and the television and you and your father. Now when I get the sun, I smile. So she's admitting that she's lonely and she feels old and Harry actually sobs on the way home from visiting her. Now, in terms of the plot, the first real disaster, Tyrone is offered a promotion with some dangerous drug traffickers. He's caught in a shootout between drug traffickers and the Sicilian mafia. You see him running away and then he gets arrested, despite being innocent. I mean, okay, he's he's involved with them, but he wasn't involved in the actual shootout. And this is just before summer turns into fall. So that, that was a good choice. It's a first disaster. So in the fall, as time passes, Sarah becomes frantic waiting for the TV invitation and increases her dosage. She has the look of a naughty little girl on her face. She's eyeing the pills up. She's saying, oh, can I take another one? Not supposed to take another one for another hour. She takes one and then uh, has that look, exactly the same look as a child who's been caught lying, you know? Or a child is... If you tell a child not to eat any chocolate just before they have their dinner, they'll put chocolate in their mouth. 
and then have that guilty look on their face. And she does that so well. Yeah, she's so childlike in this film. It's fantastic. And that scene I just mentioned before of Harry, he's almost taking the parental role, really, because he obviously knows about drugs. He's the authority there. And uh, I wouldn't say he patronises her or talks down to her, but, you know, she is like a child in the grip of an addiction, the way a child might be addicted to sweets or chocolate. They just can't turn it down. This is very interesting. She goes to the doctor and... They use a brilliant euphemism here. You're becoming adjusted to them. This is the reason why she seems to be taking more. Now, of course, adjusted means addicted. But with the man in the white coat, the authority figure, the guy you can trust telling you that, she can tell herself, oh, she's just becoming adjusted. So that's why she has to take a few more. She develops amphetamine psychosis, hallucinates being on TV. I don't know if it's the same scene or not. Maybe she goes back to the doctor twice. I honestly can't remember, but... They do an interesting thing where her voice gets slowed down and the doctor's voice gets speeded up. So again, you've got that uppers, downers, speeded up, slowing down. In the story, that's not happening, or maybe she is hearing the voices in a strange way, but, you know, it's just messing with her head. And it's, it's quite effective. You could trust the director by this point in the film that he's going to do it tastefully, and I think it is well done. Marion has the shivers... And you gradually just see all the characters starting to suffer. Harry and Marion have a classic two addicts argument about when to take their remaining stash and then when they've taken it about why they took it and couldn't they have waited longer because they've only got a certain amount left. This all comes about really because, uh, as I said, Tyrone got arrested and Harry had to use this money that they've been saving to bail him out. I think he uses most of the money. So the plot moves on. As a result of the gang warfare, the local supply of heroin becomes restricted and they are unable to find any to buy. This is Harry and Tyrone. Eventually Tyrone hears of a large shipment coming to New York from Florida, but the price has doubled and the minimum purchase risk is high. At this point, the plot really ratchets up and everything just goes from bad to worse. Harry encourages Marion to engage in sex work and the first time this happens is with her psychiatrist, Arnold and that guy is just fantastically sleazy. And you, you get the idea that when she's with this guy, you know, you can't imagine how grossed out she must have been. I don't mean the actor, I mean the character. The actor's not a terrible looking guy, but it's, it's the way he does it, the look he has on his face and the camera work and everything. And when they're in the restaurant, it's another dream sequence. She fantasises putting a fork through his hand. Those scenes are well done as well. It's shocking, you know, and there's a lot of shocking stuff towards the end of the film. Harry is waiting at home, shivering, going through a little bit of withdrawal while his, he knows his girlfriend is with this sleazy psychiatrist. He imagines what's happening. And again, when she comes home to Harry, you get this idea from the way they're acting and the way they're shot and the distance, the physical distance between them that things are probably never going to be the same again. You know, she's now tainted, not really through her own fault because her... Uh, According to the plot I've got here, Harry was kind of encouraging her, maybe persuaded her. But this, along with the mounting withdrawal symptoms, you know, their relationship's getting very, very strained. Sarah's dancing again and she's in the red dress again. But really, the amount of amphetamine she's taking and the presumably uh, increased dosage of downers as well distorts her sense of reality. Another key scene, and I'll just describe what i've got in my notes now almost skeletal she begins to hallucinate that she is again on tv smiles like a little girl as she imagines it but this time the scene is extended and 
now the TV host, and the fantasy Sarah in the red dress who looks very glamorous, suddenly she starts snogging the TV host. <laughs> and um, suddenly they're all in her living room now, and all the crowd are there, but they're mocking her rather than cheering her. So it's obviously a distortion of reality, but it's what she's feeling as well. Reflects uh, how much she needs this and how how much a crowd turning on you can really affect you if you're in a fragile state. And I can't possibly describe this scene. Obviously, I'm going to tell you, if you haven't watched the film, that you really should. And hopefully you watched it before you listen to this. Now they're suddenly in her house and she famously gets attacked by her refrigerator and the crowd start chanting, feed me, Sarah, feed me, feed me. And again, in one of the extras, somebody was saying that the feed me, it's, it's feeding her ego, it's feeding her pills or it's feeding her food. It's harrowing, really. And then it all ends with silence, except for the ominous beep of the TV. There's that beep. And it makes you think of films and TV shows where you have someone who falls asleep in front of the TV and at the end of the night, all you can hear this sort of vague beep from the TV. On the uh, podcast with Scott and Stephen, I was mentioning, you know, if you've ever been unemployed, which uh, I had quite long stretches of in my 20s, daytime TV and that beep of the TV can really drive you crazy. There's something about it, it's quite disturbing if you're in a fragile state, and especially if you kind of suspect or know what the real deal is with TV, you know, how it's... A lot of the time it's selling viewers to advertisers. You know, it's not there for your best interest. Core themes for me, when I watch a bit of mainstream TV or listen to the radio in my car, it seems to be worship of celebrities and obviously hawking products. And essentially, if you think about it, those two things together are both telling you that you're not quite up to par because there's celebrities around that are much better than you, more money, better looking, and you've got all these products that apparently you need. So put those two things together and it's telling you that it's actually encouraging you to feel shit about yourself, even though it's glossed up. And this this uh, film does that really well. The TV scenes, I mean, the, the guy playing the self-help guru, you know, the one leading the uh, audience in all these chants. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. You know, he's a bit sleazy as well. And it's brilliantly done. So Harry and Tyrone go to Miami. It's a desperate move. But they are generally... Tyrone is staying fairly optimistic. Harry's teetering a bit, but this heroin shipment just descends into a, a total melee of desperate addicts, and then there's gunfire, and then you cut to Marion, and she's just tearing the apartment up, going through withdrawal. Harry and Tyrone decide to travel to Miami to buy heroin directly from the wholesaler, and there's, um, I can't remember if it's a phone call, or maybe they're together, it's a, maybe it's the last time they're together. Marion blames Harry and calls him a fucking loser, and then she pleads with one of her dealers to get her something. You pretty much know how this is going to end, but first time you watch this film, you have no idea what Darren Aronofsky is going to present you with. It's this incredible feat of filmmaking in the last 10, 15, 20 minutes. It's absolutely staggering. I really think it is. So winter, and then we get the Requiem, of course, as I said earlier, ushers in each season, each act of the story. And I've noted here the scenes between the sets of characters constantly intercut. So what you had earlier in the film was you'd have a few minutes of Sarah and then a few minutes of Harry and Tyrone or Harry and Marion. Or you might have Tyrone or Marion on their own. Now the sequences are shorter, so the cuts are more. Sarah flees her apartment and she tries to engage people on the train. And uh, someone in the making of documentary mentioned uh, a bag lady. 
I think that's an American name for it. But, you know, obviously you see these ladies in Britain who've kind of lost their mind and they, they just walk around with one or more shopping bags or handbags just full of random objects and items that they're just mindlessly accumulating. Nice bit of social commentary, really, about the underground as well. They call it the subway in New York, the tube in London, the metro in Paris or Madrid. But the underground train and how... When we go on those trains, and I'm including myself, we often don't want to engage with anyone. It's like a private space. But she just looks like a mad woman trying to engage people. She goes to the casting agency office in Manhattan, and in her own deluded mind, it's not, why aren't I on television? It's, when am I going to be on television now? Why is it? I understand it's been a bit delayed, but, you know, it's going to happen, isn't it, right? When she walks into this um, casting agency, which is mostly populated by beautiful people in... uh, nice clothes and everything she looks absolutely terrible and the idea of the way she looks at this point in the story the idea that anyone would be letting her on television on that show you know obviously she could be on some other kind of show on television about addiction and so forth but she keeps babbling uh, i'm going to be on television it's the way she says it. i'm going to be on television and the way she says it there's just hope in her voice and it's just it's aching it's heartbreaking i'm just gonna say one more time she's so good Let's travel back in time and say, sorry, Julia Roberts. Let's give Ellen the Oscar. I just suddenly decided to consult the internet to find out if this did win any awards. But uh, there's so many awards on here. There's an A to Z of awards. I don't know which ones are the most prestigious. I mean, obviously, apart from the Oscars and the Golden Globes. American Film Institute, it won Movie of the Year, AFI. That's a pretty prestigious organisation. As I said, Anna Burstyn was nominated for the Oscar, Best Actress. Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, I haven't heard of those, but they could be prestigious. She won again, Ellen Burstyn and Aronofsky was nominated. Golden Globes, she was nominated for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Ellen Burstyn was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Screen Actors Guild, she was nominated for Best Actress. Toronto Film Critics, she was nominated. So it seems like the biggest ones, she was nominated. She won various other ones. Anyway, back to the plot. She's eventually admitted, Sarah, to a psychiatric ward, and her face now really looks like a a mask. She's force-fed, again, just like a child. I mean, I'm not saying saying children are force-fed, but you know what I mean. It's like someone's got a spoon with some liquid food trying to stick it in her mouth another really harrowing scene harry's arm has become gangrenous from heroin use tyrone sees it and at this point you know i was saying earlier where there's a point where the drugs take over and you lose all your humanity and i would actually argue that the characters in this film don't become too terrible as people there's other films about drugs and alcoholism where the the drug addict just becomes so selfish that they lose common humanity in a lot of ways But it's nice in a way that Tyrone recognises and says, you've got to get to a hospital, man. Your arm looks terrible. Harry shoots into it with some of their remaining stash. But they do go to a hospital. Meanwhile, back in New York, Marion starts to work for a pimp, Big Tim, brilliantly played by Keith David, who's one of those... He's one of those supporting actors. Never really was a big star. I'm sure he starred in a few films, but all the ones I know him from, you know, The Thing and They Live and... Lots and lots of other ones. He's just that really, really reliable supporting character. And he's brilliantly sleazy in this. I think it might be an Aronofsky. Someone said he's, he's actually the most... Uh, he's one of the more honest characters. Because he's just, yep, sex for drugs. That's it. 
That's not to say that he has any sympathy for her in the scene later on. So Harry and Sarah, they're obviously not together, but we see them both in hospital, attended to by these very, I don't know, nonplussed staff. And in fact, when Sarah is about to get ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, the male nurses are just having a chat. The way that's photographed as well, they do seem somehow unreal. They're so matter-of-fact. It's like they're completely detached from what they're about to do for this... I I said for this person, actually. You could either say to this person or for this person, because they possibly believe that they're doing good by administering this. They're just doing their job. Maybe they're just detached from it. But apparently, I didn't catch this, but one of them is saying to the other one, he can't stay away from the casino... So there's even an addiction reference in there, which is a great choice. And then we're back to Harry in hospital. The doctor realises Harry is a drug addict and calls the police. So notice criminalisation of drug addicts. Harry and Tyrone are arrested. Harry calls Marion, and this is the last time they will speak in the plot of the film. She pleads with him to come back, and they're both in tears. And again, there's a really strong rapport. Jared Leto has great relationships in this film, great in terms of believable relationships with Marianne and Tyrone and, in fact, Sarah. And then the intercutting of the stories goes absolutely crazy here. And it's the kind of thing where I can't even imagine how much work that was to think about doing that and shoot it all and then edit it together. There was an earlier scene where Sarah, when she was first on the pills and had all this energy, I think she cleans her entire house, you know, and that was all done... um, that was all speeded up. But again, uh, you know, Ellen Burstyn, that would have taken ages to actually shoot for just a few seconds of film. So Sarah does this ECT therapy. And again, just the look on her face, there's still weirdly some hope in her face. But when they administer it, you know, I've put in my notes here, makes one flow over the cuckoo's nest look like a tea party. At that moment, Marion is participating in group sex for drugs. And again, it's... 
it's so disturbing the way it's shot and everything. And oh, Harry and Tyrone are both having these frightening withdrawal symptoms, and you've got the strobe lights going. And yeah, again, you can compare it to Train Spotting. That was a different. That was a very good scene as well. Of Renton having the withdrawal. And he's hallucinating Begbie being under the covers with him and stuff, which sounds like the worst nightmare I can imagine. But uh, done very well with this kind of pulsing music. You can kind of feel, it almost feels like, you know, their heart beating really fast. They're all jittery and desperate for some kind of hit. And then we get the aftermath. Sarah's treatment leaves her in a disassociated, catatonic, near-vegetative state to the horror of her friends Ada and Ray. And we discussed this on the Stinking Paws podcast. You get the scene of Ada and Ray, and they're, they're on a park bench in each other's arms, comforting each other. And the first thought I had, and perhaps this is too cynical, I was saying, well, why are they comforting each other rather than comforting Sarah? So I thought that was an interesting choice. But then on the podcast, I think it was Stephen, pointed out, well, one of the, I think it was Ray, was the one who recommended the pills to her originally. So maybe uh, Ada is comforting Ray to say, oh, it's not your fault. Harry's arm is amputated above the elbow and he breaks down in tears after realising Marion will not visit him. Yeah, but we don't know. I mean, obviously this is a film and we're not seeing the aftermath. You know, there's no five years later, ten years later. We think it's not going to end well. You know within the film that it's not going to end well. And it's very cinematic, the idea of... Marion in a room with all her fashion designs strewn all over the room, you know, the thing that she believed in before. The last time you see her, she's clutching her stash uh, while she's lying on a bed. But we don't know in reality, you know, they might have got over it. Harry could still get on with an amputated arm. You know, I don't think Sarah got over it. I think, unfortunately, she's perhaps the biggest victim here because I think she's in a permanent catatonic state you know she may never recover from that but the other guys you know they're young and Tyrone does end up in prison but we don't know how long that sentence is there is a conceivably a world where they could have conquered these addictions Tyrone is subjected to grueling labor and psychological abuse from the racist prison guards and uh, right at the beginning I mentioned this was based on a book by Hubert Selby Jr and he plays I guess the main racist prison guard but the withdrawal they really do portray it well just that shivering, just that sense of like you can't control your body, you can't stop shaking and you just have this horrible craving, desperate need for this substance. As I mentioned, we see Marion, as she's lying on a sofa in fact, surrounded by crumpled and discarded clothing designs. A video I saw was talking about the consequences of addiction. They characterise them as mental, Sarah, physical, Harry, Obviously, with the amputated arm, criminal, Tyrone, because he's in jail, and emotional, Marion. Obviously, there's a a lot of crossover between those. Apart from maybe the criminal, there's a bit of all of those in all their situations. And then we get this ending, and um, apparently the director was pressured by the studio, perhaps not surprisingly, for some sort of happy ending, what's sometimes known as as a, quote, Hollywood ending. And Aronofsky found a very good way to end this film, which is each of the four characters curls into the fetal position. And again, you know, this could be terribly on the nose. Oh, everyone wants to be a baby, you know, I want to be back in the womb. But when you've got a guy who's an artist, and there was a lovely story, by the way, of um, when Ellen Burstyn was approached for this role, she was perhaps a little bit hesitant. And then she saw 
She said, oh, I saw 10 minutes of Aronofsky, probably Pi, this previous film. And I said, all right, this guy's an artist. I mean, and I think when you feel safe in his hands that you're in the, the hands of a, a good director, or I would say a master in this case, you go along with it somehow. And a classic example, a film that we did on Film Gold, Scott and I, we did a director commentary of Jaws. Peter Benchley, who wrote the book, said to Spielberg when he heard that Brody was going to shoot the compressed air tank that was in the shark's mouth and it was going to blow up and blow the shark up. Benchy said, that's ridiculous. And Spielberg said, well, if, if I've had them for one hour, 59 minutes, they'll let me do anything in the last minute. Something along those lines. So in a funny way, we do get a happy ending, or at least we get, in a film all about delusion, perhaps we can delude ourselves that it's a happy ending. How about that? Ty thinks of his childhood with his mother. Sarah has a strange smile on her face as she's curled up i can't remember if harry or marion is smiling right at the end sarah imagines herself as the game show winner so she's back on tv again and then a very young and healthy looking harry comes into the studio in this fantasy married and successful arriving as a special guest and it ends with sarah and harry lovingly embracing on tv so it's not real because it's on tv but i don't know maybe we can have some hope as I said, in the future, you know, maybe these people do get some redemption. Maybe they've got it at the end of this film or maybe they get it in the future. That's it in terms of the film. And on the soundtrack, I think it's the sounds of Coney Island the audio was taken from and it's children playing on the beach and you can hear the waves of the sea and again, it's innocence. And funnily enough, when I made my first album, I actually put in the back cover of the CD little bit symbolic almost to make CDs because I imagined everyone would download it if they chose to listen to it. But I made a CD and on the back was um, a shot of Linwood Avenue, which is the road where I grew up in. And on the very last, there was a kind of a reprise song of um, just a minute or two at the end. And I asked the producer, I found a sound effect of kids playing on a beach or in a playground or something. That's pretty much it for me. I hope you've enjoyed this. I've certainly enjoyed talking about this and I'm really pleased that I decided to do this solo effort as well as appearing on The Stinking Paws. And like I say, when that comes out, I'll promote it to the hilt, as I always do. But yes, what's this film about? It's about addiction, obviously, to drugs and other things. It's about the human need for attention. It's about how we can delude ourselves and how dreams are a wonderful thing. Maybe they're dreams of a future that will never happen or a past that can never come back, but it's very, very poignant. And I just think this film is a masterwork. It's fantastic. 
Not that this is important, but it's a, it's about it went up to about 120 on my flick chart. <laughs> Tried to get it higher. It's funny, you know. If anyone knows flick chart, basically of the films you have, and I've got 1540, I think something like that. When you introduce a new film, where you can rank it for the first time or re-rank it, as I did with this one, it pits it up against four or five other films, and it takes a kind of average and it gives it a position. And I was rooting for this to be higher, but. I was telling Scott, I think at the end, the only reason it's not higher is that I think the ones that are really high up on my flick chart, they tend to be older ones. And I feel like a film almost has to prove itself over 30 or 40 years, which is uh, rubbish, really, because it doesn't. Someone could make the indisputably the greatest film ever. They could make it this year. But uh, yes, I'm glad it's up there. And I think uh, it's one I'm going to return to maybe once a year, something like that. I don't tend to watch films more than once so much now. I tend to want to watch other ones. I don't know if I feel like I'm running out of time. It could be an age thing. But I will definitely return to this. Just to say, I really hope you've enjoyed this and I'll be back again with more Film Gold. I think the next show that I'm going to be editing is the review of Sorcerer with Luke Thompson, which we put out on video quite a few months back now. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you don't know my podcasts, if you if it's the first time you've listened to Film Gold, I've got Two others, Glass Onion on John Lennon and Life and Life Only, and it's it's tough uh, juggling the three. I hope they're not cancelling each other out. Essentially, I try and get two podcasts out a month, possibly three, you know, one of each, but uh, it doesn't generally work out like that. Anyway, you know, I, I'll keep pumping the podcast out for as long as anyone's interested. I do get lots of lovely messages from you listeners, so don't ever think that I don't appreciate you. And um, I'll see you soon for more Film Gold probably even sooner for some more Glass Onion on John Lennon and Life and Life Only. But until then, take care, all the best, and see you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.